Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thanks for joining me on the show again as I talk to one of the most fascinating thinkers in the world and uh, bring their insights to you in a way that hopefully I and you can understand. That is what we are going to do on this show and I am so excited to do it with you once again. I want to thank everyone who's supporting my Patreon. We are having a blast on there. We are releasing bonus podcast episodes. We are doing our live book club. And I have just posted something very special, full video of my 2019 live stand-up show, Mind Parasites Live. This was a show that I toured all across the country. It was about three different cultural parasites that want to control your mind. And it has a lot of personal history, a lot of stories that are really personally important to me. I'm really, really proud of the show. But I have never released it before until now. If you sign up for my Patreon at patreon.com slash adamconover, you can have access to this full hour stand-up show recorded at the Denver Comedy Works, one of the best comedy clubs in the country. Had a blast there. You can check it out at patreon.com slash adamconover. For just five bucks a month, you get access to bonus podcasts, live book club, and that stand-up video. So let's get to today's episode. Today, let's talk about China. You know China, that that giant populous country that hosted the Winter Olympics, invented gunpowder, and makes half of the stuff in your house? You know, as Americans, we have a somewhat fraught relationship with China. Our presidents can't figure out what the hell they think of this place. Obama pushed a pivot to Asia, while Trump demonized China and instituted tariffs. And now, in the late stage of the pandemic, there are plans to revive American industry and reduce reliance on China. Every day, it's a new kick of the political football when it comes to U.S.-China relations. But, you know, the strange thing is that despite how much we talk about China, we as Americans know very little about the place or the people who live there. Now, a lot of that is because of our own ignorance, our own unwillingness to learn, and because of decades of weird, racist narratives about the place and the people. But, you know, even when we make a good faith effort, it is hard for us to really get into the perspective of an actual person living in China today. Think about this. You know, America's part of the West, right? And so our history is based on Westernish shit. Think about what you learned in school. Ancient Greece, the Roman Empire, the Dark Ages, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and Dolly Parton, you know, the whole big Western canon, right? This is our reference point for understanding the world. And the U.S. as a country has a specific historical narrative of its place within the world. That this is a country that went from colony to slave state to isolationist to World War II hero to industrial powerhouse and global hegemon. That history shapes our perspective, our sense of ourselves, and our perspective about the rest of the world. But here's what is hard for us to often appreciate. China has its own history its own perspective, that people there are taught in school, a shared historical narrative, different from ours, that we in America need to understand if we want to understand China. Like, okay, listen to this capsule history and just imagine living through it. During the 19th century, as America had its civil war and industrialization, China began what is known as the Century of Humiliation. Seriously, that's its name. Foreign powers, as varied as Britain, Russia, and Japan, grabbed chunks of China, then forced the country to open its ports. Rebellions across the country killed millions. The dynastic system, which had lasted millennia, fell apart in 1911. And then there were decades of civil war between nationalists and communists and atrocity at the hands of the Japanese. It was fucked. This century of humiliation ended with Mao's victory in 1949, but the fuckedness did not stop, okay? Mao's reforms led to the deaths of 30 to 45 million people from the late 50s to the early 60s, one of the greatest catastrophes in human history. Then there was the insanity and violence of the Cultural Revolution, which lasted into the 70s and threw the country into further disarray and killed perhaps millions more. So... Mao dies in 1976, and the chaos of the Cultural Revolution comes to a close, and the reform-minded Deng Xiaoping, who had been thrown out of leadership during the Cultural Revolution, comes in and sets the country on a new path. And that path is a new mix of state control and market-oriented reforms, and the results are that 800 million people in China have been lifted out of poverty since 1980. 800 million! That's a sizable chunk of the population of Earth. And a middle class with a standard of living not far from that of Western countries has sprung up in just a few short decades. 
So over the course of just a century and change, this is a country that has gone from colonialism to civil war to famine to the greatest economic success story in human history. I mean, it's remarkable. And imagine how your perspective would be different if you were born into this history and how you might think differently about relations between China and the United States. What I'm just trying to scratch the surface of here is how incredibly impoverished our understanding of China truly is. Because most of us, including myself, don't know the first thing about the people or the place. So you know what? Let's start to fix that today. On the show today, we have someone who has made a career out of helping people understand China. He is so fascinating. I'm so excited to have him. His name is Kaiser Kuo, and he's the host of the Seneca podcast, an incredible commentator and expert on all things China. Please welcome Kaiser Kuo. Kaiser, thank you so much for being on the show. You're very welcome, Adam. Great to be here. So you uh, host a, a podcast about China and Chinese affairs. Um, I've been listening to it. It's fascinating. I think the thing that we have such a distorted picture of China when, you know, as Americans, just like listening to American media. Um, I'm curious from your point of view, there are probably multiple answers to this question, but what do you think Americans most often misunderstand about China in terms of a big picture? Well, I guess, I mean, if I had to pin it down to one thing, I think they, they fail to grasp how the rapidity of China's modernization across the last 40 years or so mm. uh, has really shaped the way that Chinese people view the world and just uh, the, the, the speed at which the compressed nature of that whole experience. I mean, th that's, yeah, like I said, just the one thing. I think maybe more interesting is, you know, why is our picture of China distorted? Like that's a... Uh, you know, and it's not, it's not, I don't subscribe to this idea that there's some vast conspiracy to paint China in a negative light, that the mainstream media is out to, you know, to, to uh, make China look bad. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's, that's the case. I think that there's something much deeper and structural. It's just simply the way that, that foreign correspondence, the way that journalism is structured, uh, especially here in the United States. And I can go into that. Yeah, I mean, that's true so often in the media that people think, oh, the media wants you to think this or that. And that's usually not the case. It's just like the structure of how people do the, their jobs, how newspapers make money. And then also just the human factor of like, what is it to be an American writing for other Americans about a foreign place? You end up with certain blind spots, certain pre presuppositions that just like embed themselves in the work without being questioned, right? Absolutely. And even if you don't, even if you you don't have those things, you're limited in the number of stories that you're going to be able to put in, an, in an, a U.S. newspaper, into the L.A. Times or the New York Times or the Post. Mm -hmm. There's going to be, you know, five, six stories tops that are about China. I mean, if I took a copy of the New York Times on any given day and I, I read it cover to cover, I would see a lot of stories that would make me think the United States is on fire. I would expect that I'd open my window and smell tires burning and then hear the sound of people <laughs> rushing to the barricades. Right? right. I mean, you know, it sounds like you know, the place is falling completely apart. And yeah, sure. It, there are parts of the Bay Area you could look at where it would look like that or, you know, parts of the – but, you know, you and me know from living here and, and, and from the rest of the damn paper that it's not like that actually, right? Uh, yeah, there are yeah. – there are, you know. So if you only had those – those uh, negative stories and you gave them to somebody in a, in a foreign country that didn't know anything else about the United States, yeah. uh, you would form a very, very different picture, right? And so that's what's happening here is we're only seeing stories that are worth writing. And those happen to be stories that they're about the bridges that didn't collapse, right? No, no, they're not. They're about the bridges <laughs> that collapsed. Right? They're, they're always about the planes that, that didn't land, not the ones that landed safely, right? It, yeah. That's, that's the analogy. So it's always going to be about you know China as environmental hellscape or uh, you know, uh, the the committer of atrocities against minority populations or, uh, you know, place where, uh, you know, these venal and awful uh, uh, officials are just sort of, you know, raping the, 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 the innocent, uh, you know, hardworking Chinese people, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's not to say that, uh, like, those things are true to some extent or happening in certain places, but it's not the only story and it's not the dominant story for the average person in China. That's right. That's right. 
So, well, let's let's go back to what you first said in your answer, the in the enormous rapidity of the change in China over the last 40 years. Tell me tell me more about that and, and what that means. Yeah. Why is that so important? So, you know, China, of course, emerged from the Cultural Revolution only with Mao's death in 1976. And then there was a couple of years of sort of transition. And then this uh, reform-minded leader named Deng Xiaoping, you've probably heard of him. He's mm-hmm. Times Man of the Year several times. Uh, in, in I, remember he, I remember he died when I was in middle school. Yeah. And there were a lot of yeah. a lot of things of this. You should know about this guy. He's very important. He's dead now. Like, well, I, I didn't hear about him before. I was a baby. But, you know, uh, okay, I understand he's important. What, right, what yeah, was important about important. him? So he, he really uh, was the architect of China's entire transformation. Uh, he was a really pragmatic-minded person. He decided, you know, enough of this uh, rigidly ideological whatever. Uh, let's let's open up to the rest of the world. Let's embrace elements of of market uh, reform, and let's you know let some people get rich first. Let's uh, develop the country. Let's let's put economics ahead of everything else. Now he didn't uh, open it up to political reforms as some people were hoping that he would. But uh, he did set China on the path of economic reform. And that began in 1979. So if you were somebody who had just graduated from junior high, say, in 1979, so you, uh, no, like somebody old, much older than you, <laughs> somebody who's say, say, you know, who's 60 today, right, uh, it, those, that 43 years ago, you were just finishing up junior high or high school. You know, nobody went to high school back then. It was junior high, basically. So you're working your first job. The per capita GDP of China at that point was about $175. I mean, you mm. got that's that's serious poverty, right? Yeah. Today, as that same person is now either retiring or considering retirement, the per capita GDP of China is over ten thousand dollars. Wow! So just just you know, you can do the math. It's an, a massive in terms of its percent. It's you know what five six thousand uh, percent increase in the GDP over that that period. That's yeah. one person's lifetime. So it's gone from you know these from really a, a country that was about seventy percent rural, only thirty percent urban, to a country that's about sixty percent urban now in that time. Wow. Which it's gone from you know just hovels, just wretched goddamn hovels, to yeah. these gleaming forests of skyscrapers, right? And famine, and, right? There was immense famine in the in the middle part of the century. That's like sure. still within living memory. Yeah, absolutely. Still within living memory and, you know, and political chaos too within living memory. All of those things are behind it. So if you're that person and and the last 40 odd years of your life have seen nothing but improvement day to day, you're going to have a very different take on your government. You know, the Mm. the fundamental question that Americans have about China, it basically boils down to, this is a friend of mine said this once, I thought it was just genius. It's like, why don't you hate your government as much as I think you should? Yeah. And so, you know, that's kind of your answer right there. It's yeah, well, well, because. Uh, and l- let me say, we were brought up, you know, the the most I learned about China as a kid was like Tiananmen Square. Right. Um, that was that was like the biggest unit in my global studies class in ninth yeah. grade. And it's like, OK, we're, we're taught about those events and, you know, repression and those sorts of things. And so our bias as Americans is like, yeah, why don't you why aren't you mad at your government for doing all these horrible things we've heard about? And that makes a ton of sense, just given what we learn uh, and our values, right? China mm-hmm. flies in the face of so many of our core values as Americans. So, yeah, yeah I don't really hold it against Americans that they, they think this way. I mean, it's really – I think anyone who was only exposed to that would. But I think the answer to that, uh, you know, why don't you hate your, your government as much as I think you should? It, it, a lot of it lies in this rapid growth and relative stability during this period. So mm-hmm. what does this do? You know, 40 years, 40 odd years of, of this kind of sort of constant improvement in life, it gives you, it does a couple of things to you. First of all, it makes you kind of have a little more faith that the leadership is going to steer you wisely into an uncertain future. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it's going to change your attitude about technology. I mean, we live in a time right now where a lot of Americans outside of, you know, the, the, the weirdo libertarians of Silicon Valley, where we're all kind of afraid of technology, right? I mean, we don't talk about progress without little scare quotes around it. We, we, we're, you know, we're constantly worried about, you know, how these big tech companies are riding roughshod over our privacy and abusing our data and all that. Um, you know, look at our science fiction. It's all, you know, it's all dystopian, right? It's all, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I like that little shorthand. I say that China is still in its Star Trek phase while we're yeah. kind of in our Black Mirror phase. 
And so they, they and it, part of that is because, you know, they, for their whole lives, you talk to anyone under 50 or so, they basically only known a time where the device that they have with them or their network abilities uh, have improved in lockstep with their yeah. material lives. So is, they're, it, they're, is, is there a comparison between the post-World War II years in the United States where, you know, suddenly people are, you know, single family home ownership and, and the GI Bill and, you know, oh my gosh, I've got a pension and, you know, my grandfather was a laborer in the Great Depression and, you know, the Dust Bowl and now here I am with a Ford, you know, a, a Ford sedan and, uh, you know, a kid going to the state college. Is it sort you, of that kind of thing? Put your finger right on it. That's, that's, the, that's, that's the mood, that, that kind of mm. buoyant optimism. Uh, that doesn't make you – it doesn't lend itself to, you know, really serious introspection or critical thinking. It just makes you, yeah, I'm going to enjoy this while it lasts. And, yeah, that's – not only has China gone through through that, but uh, it, it, it happened so quickly. It happened so fast. It's like – I mean, I, the analogy I use – you remember that movie? You were a kid, but that Tom Hanks was in called Big – you know oh, yeah. Movie? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Playing on the piano. Uh, you know, uh, right, right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Dancing on the piano. He's like, what, 10 or 11, and he, he goes to sleep after making a wish, and then he wakes up. As mm-hmm. a, so that's the other thing that it explains. People often are wondering, why are Chinese so damn thin-skinned? Like, why is it always, you know, hurt the feelings of the Chinese people? Why, why are they, you know, getting so upset at Daryl Morey for, uh, you know, saying something about Hong Kong or uh, why are they so pissed off at Enos Cantor or Enos Freedom? I'm sorry. Um, right. There was a joke in a, in the, uh, the monster hunter movie that like was explosive, like a, you know, exactly. that sort of thing where it's like, well, well hold on. say, yeah, what's going on there? Yeah. 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 So, you know, if you think about them as like having gone to bed as a 11 year old and then, now they look like, you know, they're the body of an adult. It looks like a, a fully developed, mature country. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the hardware can improve overnight. The software doesn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it goes really far to explain a lot of, of how Chinese people sort of view the world. That's really fascinating. And that's one of my – it's one of my favorite things to do is to is to try to – you know, when I travel, I always have this – desire to okay i came to this place as an american i'm i'm experiencing it as american and then you're there long enough where you're like wait but people just like live here every day you right. know you go to you you know i visited hong kong and i was like people live in hong kong every day what is it like to live here and you sort of want to mentally get into the mindset of of another person's way of life that's like a very difficult thing to do, but you're helping me have it in this case, which is really, really cool. Well, good, because I mean, that, that thing that you're talking about is called cognitive empathy. And it's different mm. from, you know, your your usual, you know, run of the mill empathy. Like, you know, if I see you get kicked in the nuts, I'm going to bend over, right, like, uh, and grab my, because I, we all sort of see, we, we experience that at a, a real visceral level. If you tell me that your grandma just died, I don't need to know anything about your relationship with your grandmother, whether she raised you or was just somebody, you know, you had a picture of. Mm-hmm. But I, I can still feel that sort of empathic sadness for you. But if you're trying to imagine yourself into the head of somebody who grew up with a completely different diet of fairy tales and fables, of of heroes and villains, of a whole range of experiences that's completely different from yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a that's a hard thing to do. You don't know what is there in their mental furniture, right? You don't know your way around that headspace. So it actually requires you to know something. So I, I call it informed empathy, right? Yeah, I, I read a I read a book last year, and maybe you know this book, and maybe you you think it sucks. I have no idea, but I read, <laughs> read a book about China called Superpower Interrupted. Yeah, which yeah, was, I read that. It was an attempt to, or at least as the introduction says, to tell the version of Chinese history that a Chinese person might learn in school Um, that like that not 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 from the United States perspective. But, you know, here is the story that China tells itself. And I don't know how well it does that project because I have I'm not a Chinese historian or or a historian of Chinese history. But um, I really loved that project of like, ah, that's what we normally don't get in the United. We, We have our version of the history. But what is the. What is the, you know, what's the George Washington? What is the Pilgrims? What is the, you know, uh, because that's the only way to, once you're able to do that, it's not just understanding what literally happened. It's understanding how other people see their history. So I interviewed the author. You can listen to him on my podcast. Uh, uh, the author of Superpower Interrupted is this guy named Michael Shulman. 
he was in Beijing for a very long time and he, you know, he did a lot of his homework. I, I would say that, you know, he started off very well. He started off really trying to do exactly that, but I think he, he got a little derailed midway through the book and it stopped really <laughs> being about, no, it really, it really did. It, it stopped being about uh, the Chinese perspective on things. Mm. And uh, it, it ended up sort of being now, uh, okay, so how was this early perspective? Uh, how did it warp them so that now we, we see them as so perverse? <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, we don't need to. We we don't. I I, I enjoyed the book, and there's yeah, there's yeah, a lot of good in it. Um, but uh, let like okay, just returning though to the the mindset of the average person in China who's experienced all this prosperity and is like, wow, my life's great. Um, what about all the things that you know the stories that we tell in the United States about things that are not great? For instance, the you know the fact that. Uh, China is a one-party state, right? Um, right. W- and that is, you know, extremely politically repressive. That one cannot start a new political party and try to get some votes. Um, is that a thing that people are frustrated by? In yeah, there's certainly China? some people who are very frustrated by it. You know, there's a huge range of, of thought, and those people are, you know, even more frustrated by the fact that they can't even talk about their frustration at that, you know, because mm. of the censorship a- apparatus. But then, you know, like it or not. The, the preponderant majority of people would say, well, you know, suck it up. This is the price you pay to enjoy this kind of political stability. You can have that or you can have and then, you know, exhibit B. You, you look over at the United States where and especially in recent years, they can say this with increasing confidence. That country is utterly paralyzed by its political divisions. It's, you mm-hmm. know, they are frittering away so much of their productive energy in arguing with one another about uh, the direction that the country should take. And yeah. that is not a good use of their time and energy. Uh, look at all that money going into political campaigns. That should be building roads. That should be, you know, uh, building better schools. That should be uh, used for poverty alleviation. And, you know, they, so there's always that that comparison. And, of course, the United States is not the only example of democracy in the world. But it's the example that – well, first of all, toots its own horn the loudest, so mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of our fault. But also, uh, the one that China is always going to look to, you know, just like there are other cities in the world that Chicago could compare itself to, but it's always going to compare itself to New York, right? Yeah, it, it it is. There is this paradox sometimes. It seems of democracy because I can. I can understand that point of view because, you know, I lived for many years in New York City and I read about, you know, Robert Moses, the great city planner of New Mm -hmm. York City and how all the great bridges and highways and tunnels got built in New York City. And it was I was there at a time still is that way in New York. You can't build big things there anymore. You know, they try to build a couple blocks of subway tunnel. It takes 30 years and billions of dollars and it gets stalled many times. And it's the sort of thing you start going like, man, back when they didn't care how many people got killed and how many people got relocated and, you know, uh, who got rich off of it. It was really easy to build those bridges when you when when, you know, someone like Robert Moses could just at the stroke of a pen do whatever they wanted and no one could stop them. Um, And, uh, you know, versus when there weren't environmental impact statements and people saying, hey, don't don't knock my low cost apartment building down and, you know, going to city council meetings and that sort of thing. and so I understand that perspective, right? Of if you, yeah. uh, hey, it's sure easier to produce things if you don't have uh, as robust of a democracy. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be some kind of happy medium between the two. Mm-hmm. I mean, neither seems like a, a, an acceptable alternative. I mean, yeah. yeah, I don't think that it's just a straight trade off. I think there's 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 a part of the curve where you get the best of both worlds, and you know we should all be striving for that. Oh, absolutely. Right. I, I just mean I, I understand the argument that one can make if sure, you're sure. in the position of saying, "Hey, this is this is paralyzing. Look at these folks are paralyzed. We are paralyzed in many ways. Um, our our American democracy has become dysfunctional in many ways. Um, but I mean, okay, let's talk about the. You know the the long list of human rights abuses in yeah, China, yeah, um, the the suppression and forced assimilation of the Uyghur population, and all of that. That's the how big do, one. Yeah. How does? Yeah, one. that's that's the big one that's currently happening right now. Um, I mean, tell me about that and how that looks in China politically. Yeah. So you know the, the origins of this really. I I think that. Uh, Whatever label you want to put on it, whether you call it a genocide, a cultural genocide, uh, crimes against humanity, a mass atrocity, uh, I'm I'm you know not too particular about what label, but you know I think nobody 
who understands what's happening, even if you look at it only from what the Chinese government has admitted to, thinks that this is exactly, you know, uh, a humanitarian uh, policy. It's it's pretty brutal. It's it's horrible. Uh, I you know call it out any time that I can. But uh, here's what's really frustrating: is that even good friends of mine in China who are in in the Chinese scheme of things, sort of liberal. I mean, who who, who would ordinarily care about the oppression of minority peoples? They look at what's happening there right now. Uh, in in a different circumstance, they might say something about it. But right now, they see this as just the cynical weaponization of this human rights problem by the United States to try to you know keep China down. They think mm. that the United States has blown it so out of proportion and and basically you know. Uh, used it and you know in, a, in an entirely deeply cynical way because it's not like uh, Mike Pompeo was exactly you know fighting for the rights of Muslim Americans right uh, so you know he when he's the one who starts raising these issues it looks rankly hypocritical and so yeah, yeah that's that's really unfortunate because the the truth of it is there there is uh, there are severe human rights abuses that have been going on for quite some time. Now, there's a lot of complicated backstory, uh, none of which exonerates what China has done. But I think you do need to understand this was an outgrowth of the global war on terror. This was mm. this idea that the United States uh, wanted to enroll China in this so-called global war on terror, and they gave them a very explicit green light to go ahead uh, with the demonization of this group, uh, of a separatist group that was actually quite small, as far as we can tell, and hadn't didn't have its fingerprints on many actual terrorist events. There was, you know, always sort of low-level stuff happening, but uh, this is called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, mm-hmm. and uh, f- sort of as a condition for the United States uh, to to get Chinese help, the the U.S. had to sort of put the name of that organization on a list of of terrorist groups, and so China sort of felt vindicated in this. It went ahead, and uh, you know, things uh, a a see if they understand this is a, a an enormous enormous part of, of China. It's a string of, of oases towns, basically, that ring a gigantic desert, one of the biggest mm. deserts in the world. And uh, it, it was inhabited by a Turkic Muslim people called the Uyghurs, primarily, uh, who do not speak Chinese and, and practice a kind of mild form of, of Sunni Islam, for the most part. Mm. So uh, they... China has basically had basically decided we are no longer going to uh, use the sort of Soviet model of allowing uh, total autonomy to uh, th- this this uh, different ethnic group. Instead, we're going to use what used to be the American model, the melting pot. We're going to assimilate them. We're going mm. to uh, sort of tr- wean them off their language. And you know the the way that that the Han Chinese will tell it is this is for your own good. Uh, if you don't speak Mandarin Chinese, you're not going to be productive members of this society. You won't mm. be able to get good work. You're going to always be you know, relegated to putting on your costume and singing and dancing for the tourists. Uh, you're going to be um, – and, and so you know, they, they went after them for all sorts of, of expressions of religious extremism supposedly like growing your beard too long or uh, you know, going to yeah. the mosque too often and used really sophisticated uh, surveillance technologies in, in AI to kind of it's, – it's like minority report you know, to, to identify people even before they had actually committed any kind of a crime wow. who were in need of, of intervention. And yeah, they just like is- blanketed these towns in like cameras and, yep. and surveillance, right? Yeah, and uh, biometric data and all this other stuff as well. Uh, it's it's yeah, you know. I mean, I think that, that there are a lot of people who talk about China writ large as Orwellian. Uh, I would quibble with a lot of that in most of China, but in Xinjiang, I wouldn't quibble at all. It, it's very much a surveillance state, a panopticon. Yeah, wow. so uh, they rounded them up based on this AI algorithm, uh, put them in camps, up to a million people. They say uh, for reeducation now. Are there instances of 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 rape or torture? There, there, there are many claims, but it does not seem to be systematic or on large scale. I think that anytime you have like a 
kind of power dynamic like that uh, and a racial hierarchy and uh, coercion and imprisonment of female populations, you're going to see some of that. And that's a horrible thing. But the, 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 this is not uh, mass killings, right? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a more grotesque in some ways. Like when they have invited uh, journalists to, to see some of these camps in one really harrowing thing, they brought these journalists by these classrooms where they had these Uyghur men in a classroom all singing in English, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Yeah, I mean, it was <laughs> oh, just, I mean. Uh, it's uh, out of a movie. It, yeah, it's, it's, I couldn't have dreamt that up. It would have been like too preposterous to put into a movie. But so this is this is not mass killings, but this is a mass attempt to assimilate or destroy a culture through separating people from their culture, re-educating them, et cetera. I would say, yeah, I would definitely say that's that's what it, it is. Now, uh, that's awful. I have to agree with you, though, that I have heard a lot of people complain about this disingenuously in the U.S., you know, folks who have never expressed and would never express any concern over, you know, forced assimilation policies that happen in the United States to our indigenous populations here, right? Uh, children being separated from their parents, re-educated, languages being destroyed, populations being forced to move from, you know, one part of the country where they initially lived to completely different areas like that, you know, gen like overt genocide in the United States. Um, you know, there are politicians and political actors here who say, oh, that's all bullshit. Uh, the Native Americans are very lucky and happy that we came, you know, fuck you. All that's great. What is China doing to the Uyghurs? That's awful. Um, right. and that's obviously hypocritical. Um, but it also leaves me a little bit uncertain of how to treat it. Cause I'm like, yeah. well, all right, I'm not angrier about Mike Pompeo's hypocrisy than I am about the human rights abuse. I don't want to get drawn into some kind of argument where it's like, you're, you're being hypocritical, but I also, I understand the, you know, when someone says, oh, this this argument is being used hypocritically. Yeah, some people are being hypocrites. Yeah, so it's it's a really difficult thing to do. I mean, to tweet about, you know, when is it just, when are you using whataboutism to try to shut down a conversation? Or when are you actually, you know, making the case that you don't have moral standing for that criticism? Uh, you know, the, the American response typically is, yes, but we can talk about that openly and we can make redress and we have learned the lesson. And are you really saying that two wrongs make a right here? And of course, that's not what uh, – well, there are, I think, bad faith uh, people who do engage in whataboutism, who do try to sort of – erase or whitewash what China has done just by pointing out uh, similar horrible things that the United States or Canada or Australia has done. Yeah. Uh, I hope that I'm not, I'm certainly, I don't regard myself as being one of them. I certainly don't think that it exonerates China in any way. But I do wonder whether our standing is eroded. And I certainly think that in the Chinese eye, uh, it weakens our ability to lecture with real moral force. Yeah. I mean, we even if we say, hey, we talk about it openly, we have atoned through mass discussion of our genocide. Well, there's currently bills being passed across the country to try to prevent that history from being taught in our schools. Exactly. Yeah. So like literally teachers are getting fired for bringing up the basic facts of America's history towards, you know, our enslaved, uh, formerly enslaved African-American populations against the indigenous populations. Like it's it's not always possible to discuss openly. People are people You're are literally right. fired for discussing it from state institutions. So, you know, it is. Yeah, it, it's harder for us to make the argument than we would want. But that doesn't mean that the practice that of of forced cultural assimilation in that region of China is uh, any better. <laughs> no, mean it's it, okay. It, it doesn't doesn't change it one bit. So, and this is a, a an age old problem. I mean, when it comes to us wanting to do good in the world uh, and uh, you know seeing other people suffering. So, in the case of Tibet or in the case of Xinjiang, I, I really wonder whether we could do more by doing less and there are there are, i know it sounds awful and and you know we want to be able to express ourselves in a way that's consonant with our values but uh when we i, I feel like we need to reach out the, the 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 only thing that can actually change the situation is if we were able to win over 
significant populations of the majority, you know, 92% of Chinese identify as Han, right? That's mm -hmm. a lot. And, you know, that's the dominant ethnic group in China by a huge, huge amount. And they're even a majority in uh, Xinjiang right now, a small majority in that, that autonomous region. I think back to the civil rights movement in the United States. And if, if it were all about, you know, uh, blame whitey, and it, if it didn't open itself up to people who wanted to get on buses and come down from northern universities to take part in marches alongside, you know, to show what we now call allyship, uh, I don't think it would have gotten as far as it did. Mm -hmm. If if the, the rhetoric around it coming out of uh, Dr. King or uh, other leaders of the black civil rights movement was, uh, you know, more along lines of of Malcolm X than it was Martin Luther King, uh, I think there may, might not have been the kind of, uh, I mean, as, as righteous as that would have been, I'm afraid it probably wouldn't have been as effective. So I think it's, Americans need to ask themselves, I mean, there's this line from, from one of Obama's speeches that I absolutely love. He, he, he said, and it was at Oslo. I mean, everyone says he got that Nobel Peace Prize way too early, and he did, and he, he knew that himself, but he, he gave a great speech. And in one line of it, he said, well, I know that engagement with repressive regimes lacks the satisfying purity of indignation. I'm afraid that a lot of Americans are really kind of wallowing in the satisfying purity of indignation rather than actually wanting to change the situation on the ground. Mm -hmm. They're doing it to, to make themselves feel good about being on the right side. And it's great that they're on the right side. I don't want them, obviously, to be on the right side. But if it stops with that sort of self-soothing, then what good is it? Yeah, but then how engaging in that more complex, deeper way is so difficult and fraught when we don't even understand the place. You know, like, uh, hey, I wore a Fight for Freedom Stand with Hong Kong shirt to an NBA game because they were handing them out before the game. And I was like, great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Very easy political statement for me to make. I felt very indignant when I did it. You know, great. But um, yeah, if I were to want to engage with the deeper project of you know, political reform in China and help change the hearts and minds of all the folks is, whose hearts and minds need to be changed. Well, God, I don't know the first thing about how I do that <laughs> right. right here. Hong Kong's another great example. I mean, it's a really, really complicated situation. You, you're yeah. a comic, right? You understand there's this principle of punching up versus punching down, right? As a mm -hmm. comic, you're, you know, if you want to make fun of, uh, if you want to, you know, go after uh, Silicon Valley billionaires, if you want to go after, you know, powerful uh, politicians, that's great. Nobody's going to stop you. You can say whatever you want. But if you started picking on people who are like, you know, non-neurotypical or, or uh, mm -hmm. people from, you know, oppressed minorities, you'd look like an asshole. You would you'd be an asshole, right? Yeah. So the problem in, in Hong Kong kind of boils down to that, is that mainlanders feel like they're punching up and Hong Kong people feel like they're punching up. Wow. Now, it makes sense for Hong Kong people to think that they're punching up. After all, they're fighting this gigantic, you know, e this enormous, very, very powerful state. So uh, that that's obvious. But why would mainlanders think that they're punching up? And that's, this is the part that most people are, are not aware of. They're not aware of the dynamic. Hong Kong was always way wealthier, you know, all the way up, well after handover even in 97, yeah. way, way wealthier. Uh, and, you know, they treated mainlanders who visited like they were their poor country cousins mm -hmm. and, and not in a charitable way at all. I mean, they, they were contemptuous of them and it had only gotten worse as the mainlanders suddenly had more money. So- uh, it, it came, it got to the point, I mean, I used to go there often. I lived in Beijing for 20 years and I'd go down to Hong Kong all the time. And I played this little game where I speak really fluent, you know, Beijing accented Mandarin. And I'd go and I'd check into my hotel and I'd speak Mandarin to them. And because, you know, it's a Chinese dialect that anyone in, in, in service knows. And they treat me, you know, really brusquely with, you know, borderline contempt. And then I pull out the American passport and slap it down there and switch into, you know, code switch immediately into accent-free English. And suddenly they get all fucking obsequious. Wow. And, and so this it's a thing. Any mainlander who's visited Hong Kong can tell you that, that, that that's a thing. You're, you're treated as a social inferior. And this is not and, – and so, you know, they were using dehumanizing language. They were calling mainlanders locusts. That's not wow. cool. So yeah. now that does does that mean that China should be able to then gun them down? No, it didn't. They didn't gun them down, but you know, to to yeah. deny them uh, the promised uh, political liberalizations. 
No, I don't think so. And I, I think that it's, it's, but it's, it's really complicated. We only yeah. see part of it. I mean, if we see it in black and white, we're, we're really missing it. Yeah. Oh my God. This, this shit is so complex and I have so many more questions for you, but we have to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Kaiser Quo. Okay, we're back with Kaiser Kuo. Uh, you mentioned Taiwan. I'd love to talk about Taiwan a little bit um, because the more I learn about, you know, the situation, the the political situation between China and Taiwan, the more fascinated I get and the more complex it seems um, because it's, I don't know, there's, there's similarities to, you know, Hong Kong and Taiwan being put next to each other, but it's also like a, the history is completely different. Could you yeah, like... Yeah. Just uh, tell me, like, first of all, let me just say the fact that, and correct me if I'm wrong, both China and Taiwan or both Beijing and the government of Taiwan claim to be the government of both countries, of both areas, right? Of both, like, and they are competing uh, governments that both claim territory over the entire ball of wax, even though they do not have it, correct? Well, almost correct. I mean, so Taiwan, so when when Taiwan was still ruled by the Kuomintang Party up until 1996, mm-hmm. that was true. But in in the time since, the Democratic Progressive Party, which is was an opposition party, and it actually uh, began winning elections, uh, and is is in power right now. They never foreground this claim to the entire ball of wax, as it were. Mm. Uh, they, uh, without coming out and saying it absolutely directly, they lean way more in the direction of independence for Taiwan. Mm. So it's, it's different. So th- that would have been true previously, but it, it really functionally no longer is. Taiwan's not it, – it's it's really complicated, but I think it, it it's super complicated for Americans in particular when you look at it because it's like if you don't look at Taiwan and recognize that – it has functioned independently for over 70 years and has developed over the last 40 years a vibrant democratic culture with a, a successful democratic politics uh, and has you know, a ton that's just super admirable from the American perspective. You don't mm-hmm. have a heart. But if you look at the Taiwan situation and you think that, that uh, therefore we should just – Throw ourselves behind this idea that uh, we can ignore the diplomatic claims, uh, of the, the diplomatic agreements that we entered into that were the foundation of our relationship with the People's Republic, you know, beginning with the Shanghai communique way, way back in 72. You don't have a head. I mean, you, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a classic battle of the, the heart and the head. Um, mm. And it, it, it makes for a terrible conundrum. Uh, I think that you know anyone who spent time in both places in in China and and Taiwan uh, knows that while again once again there are so there's so much similarity and so much difference at the same time. Yes, yeah. it's, it's it's just mind boggling. Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> it is very hard for Americans to understand. Like the thing that really struck me the most this was within the last year. This is how weird things are. John Cena gave an interview about a new movie that he had coming out. And he just says casually in the interview, oh, yeah, Taiwan's going to be the first country where they uh, where they get the movie. That's the yeah, first country yeah. the movie's going to be released. And then he was inundated by folks from China saying, Taiwan is not a country. How dare you say Taiwan is a country? And right. he made an apology yeah, in yeah, yeah. Mandarin, I believe, where he, he said- did. He speaks good Mandarin, yeah. He speaks good Mandarin. He says, I'm very, very sorry for saying that Taiwan is a country. Now, I think most Americans would just reflexively say, yeah, Taiwan's a country. Like, because they that is their- I don't know. You look at a you look at a map, you know, yeah. um, we don't it's... recognize it as a country. The United States government does not recognize Taiwan as a country. Yeah, fact, I, I, I'm aware. I'm aware of this right, with right. my head, but I am. But it is a point upon which I think a lot of Americans are confused. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no. I you, that's that's exactly right. I mean, and, and the expect I, mean, I think we need to look at this. At the, at the mainland perspective on this and why it is in its own way so fucked up. I'll get in huge trouble with my wife if she ever hears me t- talking like this. But <laughs> listen, I mean, look, the PRC, the, the People's Republic of China, has never had jurisdiction over Taiwan. It was part of pre 
uh, PRC China. It was part of the Republic of China and it was part of the Qing dynasty that preceded that. Uh, but it was never under the control of the People's Republic of China. So when people say reunification with the People's Republic, that's that's just simply incorrect. Mm. What 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 people in the PRC don't seem to grasp is this: Japan took Taiwan in 1895, the spoils of a war between China and Japan that was fought in 1894 and 1895, and uh, ruled it as a colony for the next 50 years. During those 50 years, basically people of Chinese descent on Taiwan missed out on all the formative events of modern Chinese nationalism. Mm. They were not – so, you know, as as the brilliant scholar Shelley Rigger has talked about before, there was a psychological distance between them. They don't feel uh, as Chinese. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, and why should they? Like I said, they don't feel the impulse of Chinese nationalism. And that's something that, you know, when I've, I've tried to sit down with my Chinese friends and explain and tell them this, sometimes you get an aha moment. Sometimes they, there's a breakthrough and they realize, you know, you're right. Why would I saddle them with that expectation when, you know, of course they didn't. They, they missed out on And I can roll off a litany of 40 things, you know, major events that were like crucial moments in the birth of Chinese nationalism yeah. that, that they were completely separate from. Yeah, because they were in a different. They were ruled Under by a different, a different yeah. group of people. They were not. Is yep. the same true of Hong Kong? By the way, I always wonder. So like, it's like, it's different though. It's different because you know it's contiguous, right? I mean, Taiwan is separated, you know, by a, a pretty wide strait. Hong Kong, you know, we think of it as Hong Kong Island, but the, you know, the ge- geography of Hong Kong is such that the mainland parts of Hong Kong are much bigger and more, more populous. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Hong Kong was continuous. It had a constant in and out flow of people, especially of people who were, you know, crucial in the formation of Chinese nationalism because uh, that's where they sought shelter when they were being persecuted by the Qing dynasty, right? That's where they sought shelter if they were nationalists being persecuted by warlords or if they were communists being persecuted by nationalists. So there there was a more contiguity and, and more sort of participation in that. During the Cultural Revolution, so many mainlanders fled into Hong Kong. It was a, it's a very different situation. You Got didn't it, but- have that admixture in Taiwan. But Taiwan was was just always more separate, and so the what the culture and the history of the place is is not tied up in that recent, extremely eventful last like half century of right. of chi- mainland Chinese history. Yeah, and, and yet it also is in in a in a strange way. So mm. it's very complicated because you know the the for the ruling strata for a while there, the people who were, you know, the elites who dominated everything from higher education to uh, banking to, you know, industry to to politics were mainlanders. They, you know, they came over, they were the 49ers, we call them. My parents were among them. My grandfather was, uh, you know, very senior in the, the nationalist organization. He was a scholar, but, you know, he was very, very senior there. And oh. um, yeah, so my both my parents grew up in Taiwan uh, but we're born in the mainland, so that that's it, it complicates things even further. But they're no longer at all the the, the ruling, you know, major uh, minority. Uh, yeah, it's, it's you know because you, we can't freeze things in time in 1972. Yeah, how do so? How do people in uh, you know mainland China like? How do they think about Taiwan? You said that. They don't understand that. Oh, they missed out on on all these right. moments of Chinese nationalism. But what is the sort of default? You the know? default is like total brutal irredentism. Taiwan should belong to China. Taiwan is it only exists independently because the United States interfered in our civil war that we were going to win. Uh, wow. and the only reason is because they interposed before we were able to to mobilize to finish off this little rump state that had escaped to Taiwan. It's only because the United States interposed forces uh, and threatened to nuke us that, that, that Taiwan even exists. So that's what they, that's what they would say. And so we're here to finish off uh, what history (laughs) intended all along. And what is, what is preventing, I'm I'm so, this is such one-on-one stuff, but I've, I've always been fascinated by it. So I'm really, I'm really happy to be able to talk to you. Um, what is preventing that final resolution, right? Like, because because you look at it and go, all right, this is a pretty tenuous situation. The United States doesn't does not recognize Taiwan as a country, but presumably, if I travel to Taiwan, 
I'm going to have a different stamp on my passport than if I was going to travel to uh, Beijing or Hong Kong, right? So that in itself is just a weird situation Mm -hmm, geopolitically. mm -hmm. Very unique and you you would think would not be tenable over a long period of time, except it's lasted for decades. And you have, you know, vast majority of people in the People's Republic saying, hey, this is a little rump state that we should absorb any day now. So what is what is keeping us in this in this sort of odd stasis? What's kept it here is uh, this fantastically well-crafted policy from the United States called strategic ambiguity. It's mm. like uh, they have basically cre- we've we created we co-created conditions for the indefinite continuation of this weird status quo, which to me is the only workable thing right now. So, um, strategic ambiguity means a couple of things. It means, well, mainly that you know, if China were to move on Taiwan. We won't tell you whether we would or would not come to the military aid of mm. Taiwan. Now, the, the the mainland, of course, assumes that we would, and and we should never allow them to think otherwise. Mm. But uh, the so I've talked to you know dozens of of people who who are party to this the creation of this. You know, this is I talk to diplomats and people all the time uh, for the podcast and. Uh, what I understand is that the unofficial American policy has always been if a Chinese invasion comes without a prior declaration of independence from Taiwan, the U.S. will absolutely intercede. But mm. if Taiwan fucks, fucks us and, and decides to, to declare independence first, which you know, throws everything into, into turmoil, and then China invades, we won't lift a finger to help. Wow. And, and that is because what it violates our previous agreement with the People's Republic or? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for one is that, it, you know, because we notionally subscribe to the one China, China policy. I always almost say one child policy, but the one China <laughs> policy. Wow. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's really strange. But, you know, really, the only people in the world who aren't sure whether the United States would invade if if uh, would, would intercede in, in the event of, a, of, a, of an unprovoked Chinese attack is the United States. Everyone else assumes that, that we would intercede. And uh, that, that thank, thankfully for that. So it's just kind of a classic like foreign policy stalemate where it's like if anybody – things won't change unless someone makes a first move. But That's if someone right. makes a first move, it will not be in there. It's not in Taiwan's interest to declare independence even though they sort of like spiritually consider themselves independent in a way. It's not in China's interest to invade because they're they're worried about triggering something from the U.S. It's not in the U.S.'s interest to change anything about the facts on the ground because, hey, then nothing bad ha- – nothing, nothing but, fucked up will happen. We won't have to send any troops anywhere. But, but let's, let's – but we, I think we need to be fair to, to Taiwan here. Nobody in Taiwan got a say in this, right? Yeah. And I mean, and that that is it's a it's a horrible truth, and it's not fair. It's absolutely not fair. And of course, Taiwan should ideally have not just a say, but you know, ideally the only say. It's mm-hmm. just that that's not the world we live in. That is yeah. absolutely not the world we live in. Uh, we live in a world where you know we we need to 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 balance the interests of all the parties that are involved in this. And, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to puzzle through this thing, you know, looking at, at, at the disposition of different forces and all these, you know, reading all these military reports. And the only thing I can come up with is we just got to keep kicking the can down the road until any old fucker who cares so much about this that they would throw blood and treasure into it is dead. <laughs> and then say, okay, now all the old fuckers are dead. Let's have a conversation. Ideally, right. let's get her, get together around table. Let's talk for real now, and and let's let's like leave the fucking ideology the ideology at the door, and then like you know figure out the future because <laughs> it has been a phenomenally wonderful uh, cross pollination over the. I mean, look, if it were not for all these Taiwan entrepreneurs going to China, China would not be manufacturing the world's cell phones right now. Foxconn is a Taiwanese company. Most of these OEM and ODM manufacturers uh, in the mainland are run by, started with, started by Taiwanese people. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a a book by that same author I just referenced called The Tiger Leading the Dragon. And that's, that's a perfect metaphor for it. Taiwan, one of the five tigers, one of the four tigers, was the one that really, you know, started the Chinese economic miracle in a lot yeah. of ways. And then likewise, uh, if it weren't for Chinese manufacturing capabilities, where would Taiwan be today? 
it would be, mm. you know, kind of a backwater. It doesn't have a growing population. It doesn't have, I mean, a, a, a cost structure that would make it an attractive place to manufacture. Yeah. It, 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 it would be, yeah. So it's been, uh, when it's good, it's great. Man, there, oh, God damn it. There's so much to talk about. That is also fascinating. I really, really appreciate it. I want to bring us in. I want to bring us in for a landing here. Um, All right. Uh, one one question I just want to make sure I, I ask you, coming back to your initial point about what has changed in, especially mainland China, in the last 50 years, the economic miracle uh, or, you know, the incredible growth in standard of living and all that. Um I read a theory a couple of years ago, and I can't remember where it was on someone's blog post somewhere. Um, but it was that, like, the main mistake that Americans make is thinking that uh, freedom, which we value very highly, we're taught about in school. It's like our highest, uh, you know, national word, right? It's what yeah. we pray to. It's what we write on our buildings. Uh, is that we think that that's a value that is extremely highly prized in China, and whatever. Blog post I read was asserting that stability was a much more important value, that like yeah. China had been through such upheaval, you know, uh, colonization, civil wars, uh, you know, the Cultural Revolution, all of this over so many decades that it was just important for folks to like, OK, n nothing is blowing up right now. No one's dying of a famine. Everybody's, you know, doing Getting OK. Richer, doing, and that yeah. that was the mo that that was like a much deeper national value. And I, I wondered if you agreed with that. I do agree with that. I think that's um, it might have been my blog post that you read. I mean, I've said <laughs> the same thing, but uh, okay, no, seriously, um, you know, it's not an original thought. But I think the, the, the person who said it best was a friend of mine named Jeremiah Jenny. Who, who said, when the Chinese, when Americans create their movie villains, when we create the, the, our bad guy, uh, the, the, it's we, every single time we recreate Nazi stormtroopers. It's always like, you know, jackbooted thugs. It's always like mm. a, an excess of, of, of political authoritarianism. That's always, you know, the villain, right? Mm. But when Chinese create their, uh, their nightmare scenarios, their bad dreams, it's always about chaos. It's always about an absence of rule. It's the cultural revolution. It's the warlord period. It's mm. all these periods of, of, you know, that Akira Kurosawa movie, Ran, right? That, that, the character that they use is the Chinese character, Luan, which means chaos. Mm. That is the great fear, is chaos. And of course it is. I mean, that's the lived experience. I mean, as you said at the very op the top of the show, this is in the lived mem the, 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 the living memory of a lot of people, you know, who are, mm -hmm. again, alive today. They remember the chaos of the Cultural Revolution and they don't want it. So, yeah, I think that that's, that's essentially correct. Now, does that mean I, – I do not believe that that is true – genetically it's like for all time chinese people will always believe that no yeah. it, it, it's it's completely conditional on what the experience has been you yeah. know what 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 they've they've lived through uh and what they've been taught and, and all that stuff there's nothing genetic about it it's not hardwired into them but right now chinese people and this is going to change because they all you know when when all anyone can remember is stability i think it will not be you know chaos that they fear as much. Do you think that? So we have this like long one of our deepest narratives in America that we apply to other countries all the time, is that okay? Even despite all that, people do crave liberty at the end of the day, you know. Um, and that's you know that's deep in our uh, narrative of, of Hong Kong, for instance, right? That okay, this this is a place that became you know liberalized and democratic, and that you know even if the state imposes all of that order, that one day you know people will start uh, crying for their rights, right? Um, is that is that like in your view entirely false or is that something that like could could hold to some degree that like hey once once things are stable in china for another 50 years right maybe maybe people start going like hey what if we get a second party going on or something yeah no i i maybe it's because i grew up in the states and i was born here and and and, and drank that same kool-aid but i i firmly believe that that you know when conditions you know it's not that maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of thing right i mean mm. once everyone's got you know their 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 basics all taken care of of course i mean it's sort of that maybe that is something that is hardwired into us is that of course we desire uh, more sort of space for individual expression. That's just sort of part of what the species is. Uh, it's it's a matter of prioritization. It, and I don't think I've ever met a Chinese person who would disagree with that. You know, they want, it's just like, of course they want to get to that. It's just how we get there. Right now, 
freedom and democracy aren't looking so great in the in 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 the, uh, in the in the short term again because you know America is always what they're looking at and you know we've kind of pooched it here we've we've really not not done so well I mean yeah. we look we we're not not a, a particularly good role model and I think we we many of us know that and uh, I found it extremely difficult to preach the gospel of American freedom and democracy to any of my Chinese friends I mean it's I mean I. I- I often think about if you're the leader of any country or if you're any country and you're a partner of the United States or you're looking at the United States and then, you know, a Donald Trump gets elected and, you know, a bunch of a bunch of folks storm the Capitol building. You're like, holy shit, this system. I thought these guys were resilient. I thought yeah. that, you know, America, hey, they got two parties, but things will, you know, they got stability. They have, uh, you know, economic prosperity. Um, they don't have political violence. And then you're like, you know, if you're like an Angela Merkel or somebody like that, you're like, holy shit, look, look what can happen. Like, yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah. And now we got that, you know, now things are, uh, maybe things are quiet down a little bit, but in the back of your mind, you're like, well, hold on a second. They did that once. It could happen again. Right. Oh, like, I mean, it's like, extremely likely to happen in 2024. I mean, do you, do you really think we're going to hold a Senate? Do you really think we're going to even hold a majority in the House? I don't I don't think so. I mean, it, it's looking really, really grim right now. And, you know, the, the, I don't mean to end this on a bummer note, but here's the thing that I fear most is that Chinese elites, not just in, in government, but, you know, people all over China are, will have come to the kind of final conclusion that irrespective of what party holds Congress, irrespective of who sits in the White House and what party they belong to, the real goal for the United States when it comes to China is to thwart China's rise, to keep China on its knees, to prevent it from developing, uh, you know, as a, uh, as a, a peer, and to, you know, maintain our unipolar, unipolar hegemony forever. That's what that's what uh, more and more Chinese people have come to believe about the United States. And if they finally decide that that is true, what are the consequences of that? If they, if if all their policy afterward is built on that assumption, if that is a yeah. rock solid assumption, we're all kind of fucked. Yeah, I mean, it's a recipe for for Cold War. It's a recipe for for like a lot. Uh, it's a recipe for for having a lot more trouble getting iPhones and everything else that our society is built on. Like it's yeah, it's yeah. a bad scene. Yeah. Terrible, terrible scene. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, OK, let's let's end on this note. Um, we, we've talked so much about how our view as Americans of China is so shallow and narrow and based on. You know, again, learning two or three facts in school and having two or three narratives repeated endlessly in the press without any deeper investigation. And that is certainly contributing to this dynamic that you're talking about, um, where people are either nothing but frightened or aggressive towards China. How do you suggest folks at home break themselves of that spell and like uh, try to, you know, actually get what you are describing, cognitive empathy, do that very difficult trick of actually understanding what China is actually like from the perspective of the people who are there. You know, um, I, <laughs> you're going to hate me for saying this, but subscribe to my fucking podcast. Yeah, that's right? what, no, I, this is, I'm giving you an invitation for a plug, man, do it. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, so, so it's, the podcast is part of a, a, an independent media organization called Sup China. It, you might not love the name, I don't love the name, but Sup as in like, <laughs> Right. What's up? Sup, yeah, China. what's up, China? Right. Uh, but it's great. It's a great organization. Um, the, the the guy who's – so it's sort of a two-headed thing. Uh, I run all our audio stuff. Uh, we have a, a network of podcasts that include uh, this one. We have a a, day, a weekly news roundup that we do. Uh, we we have a uh, – in the in-depth – the flagship show is called Seneca. It's a, an hour, hour and a half, sometimes long, deep dive with really, really you know important scholars or diplomats – uh, journalists, sometimes being you know, practitioners, people who know what they're talking about. Uh, and w- the website itself, they have a, a daily newsletter and a free weekly newsletter. The daily newsletter is paid, but it's really worth it. It's it's just a uh, curated roundup of all the important news coming out of China uh, with our own editorial spin, for sure. But I think you'll like our editorial spin. It's, it's, it, it's you know, what you've been hearing today. In, in other words, there is no apology for China going on there. It's not, it's not saying, oh, you know, uh, China is just misunderstood. It's all just a PR problem. No, 
you know, we we are very forthright. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. We talk about China's uh, human rights violations. We talk about uh, its foreign policy, where you know it rubs up against ours. But we we try to bring that angle of cognitive empathy into everything. Chinese perspectives on things, sitting alongside American and other other perspectives. So yeah, I think uh, you'll you'll dig what what we do. Uh, we have a lot of really good columnists, you know, writing on everything from history to you know feminism, uh, LGBTQ stuff. Uh, it's 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 a good site and uh, it's rich. Lots and lots and lots of content that we put out every day. And uh, a whole bunch of podcasts. We've got one that a lot of listeners might be interested in. It's called China Sports Insider. We've got a two oh. every week right now because of the Olympics. And, you know, this is a veteran uh, sports uh, sports writer. Uh, and the, the other podcast that's they do 45-minute long show twice a week right now, uh, all on the Olympics with, you know, really great interviews. Um, Lots of other shows in the network as well. We, one that I think is fantastic is called the China in Africa podcast, which is all about China's involvement in the developing world, in the global south. So it's not just Africa. There's also some stuff on Latin America and the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, but check that out. We also do a, a, a podcast called China Stories, which is great if you like, you know, it's kind of like Autumn, you know, that, that app. If you like to listen to podcasts, and presumably you do, you're listening to a fucking podcast. Yeah. Uh, listen to this. It's, it's China Stories. It's uh, English language stories on China from about seven different major English language outlets that are specializing in writing on China. The Wire China, Protocol China, Us Sub China, uh, Week in China out of Hong Kong. Uh, and, and it, it, they're just read by people who actually speak Chinese, so they don't butcher the pronunciation of the names. So check check that out. It's it's great. We put out like 10, 10 of those a week. Uh, amazing. I, I love what you do so much because it's like it's so hard to find media that is really focused on just understanding what the hell is going on in all of its facets, right? Because the first thing you have to know, like you say, you can, it's very easy to have outrage and say, well, you know, this, uh, whatever, yell about a human rights violation, but you need to understand why is it happening? What do the people, you know, in the country think about it? Like, what are, you know, what is, what is going on mentally? What is going on politically? And it's so difficult to do to think your way into it. And the fact that you're dedicated to that project is is enormously helpful. I'm, I'm such a fan of what you do, and I'm, I'm thrilled you came on the show to talk about it. You'll have to come back on again so we can talk about the other 50 things that are on my question list that we didn't even get to. Like, <laughs> you got it, things man. Like, like the, you know, what has changed? I shouldn't even get started. My God. Um, we'll have to do it again in the future. Anytime, man. Anytime. <laughs> Thanks so much, Thanks so Adam. much, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you to Kaiser Quo once again for coming on the show. His podcast, once again, is called Seneca. I hope you check it out. Thank you so much for listening. And I specifically want to thank our $15 a month Patreon supporters, Allison Leparado, Alan Liska, Antonio LB, Charles Anderson, Chris Dale, Drill Bill, M, Goddess Morgana, Hillary Wolken, Kelly Casey, Callis Freeney, Mark Long, Michael Warnicke, Michelle Glittermum, Paul Mauk, Robin Madison and Spencer Campbell. I want to thank our producers, Sam Roudman and Chelsea Jacobson, Ryan Connor, our engineer, Andrew WK for our theme song, the fine folks of Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I'm recording this very episode for you on. You can find me online at, at Adam Conover or adamconover.net, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time on Factually. Factually.